You saw it, the rat. With her face. Well done. Her human face. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, part two, we return to the witch house. And this time, it's personal. (laughs) So last time, uh, we rambled on, uh, we gave a synopsis, and uh, we we chatted about some of the themes in the story. And we're not going to do that this week, because we're going to look at some of the adaptations. Namely, well, mostly Stuart Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) But other things too. Yes. Yes. Well, let's start with the Stuart Gordon one, because yeah. it's probably the best one for a start. Yes. So it, also they, not a musical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there was a TV series on Showtime a number of years ago, not that many years ago, called Masters of Horror, which sadly only ran for two seasons. Yeah, I've got it down as 2006. I was going to say, it's almost so, ten years. Uh, eight years ago. Eight years ago. ago. Okay. Time flies. Uh, all right. <laughs> well, it only, it only ran for two seasons. and To most of our listeners, yeah, it's like a couple of years ago. It's not long ago. <laughs> yes. We're, we're not a young hobby. The premise of the series was that they got a bunch of uh, well-known horror film directors to uh, basically do stories that they wanted to do, you know, one-hour stories on Showtime on cable TV in the US. You know, in theory... The series wasn't censored at all. In practice, when it got round to the final episode of Series 1, the Takeshi Miike one, uh, they got the final product from Miike and said, well, you can't put this out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and only released... I, and I think they might have put out a censored version of it on Showtime, but they, they only released the, the Miike's actual version on DVD. <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, no, I'm not God, seeing it. Yes. I, I know imprint, I think. The yeah, it's, 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 it's all about a traditional Japanese abortionist. And, Lovely. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really good piece, yeah. uh, but it's it is fucked up. Uh, the, the only one I've seen otherwise, apart from the Stuart Gordon one in the series, is um, Don Coscarelli's incident on and off mountain road. Oh yeah, oh Japan yeah, I saw that adaptation, yeah. which yes. was good. Yeah, I quite like that. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there was some, the, the highlight of the first series for me was uh, John Landis's Dear Woman, uh, which was just amazing, uh, and it's really funny, really, really funny. And, and Stuart Gordon actually did two. Did he? Yeah, he did one in the second series as well. He did an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, The Black Cat. Oh, I'll have to buy the second season now you told me that. Damn, yeah. I've only got the first one. <laughs> yeah, I must catch up with the rest. I mean... Uh, this one I thought it was... Uh, I remember watching it a few years ago and I was like, yeah, that's quite good. And then watching it again this time, I think because I just read the story, mm. I realised how much of the story is, is in his adaptation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, taking a step back for a moment, um, we're assuming everyone knows who Stuart Gordon is. Okay, uh, so I... director of Reanimator. Yep, and Dagon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, he's done a number of other you know, pretty damn good films as well, but you know, those are the two Lovecraft adaptations he's known for. He's done a couple of other um, you know, Lovecraftian works as well. He did um, Castle Freak, uh, Castle Freak, which was you know, tangentially based on The Outsider, but really had fuck all to do with mm-hmm. it. He did an adaptation of The Evil Clergyman as well uh, for an anthology film that I think Charles Bam produced back in the, the late 80s, starring Jeffrey Coombs as the evil clergyman in question. Uh, hardly surprising given he uses Coombs in virtually all of his works anyway. Yeah. Now, he was going to play a character in this adaptation. Oh, he was going to play the crazy guy downstairs, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, Murovitz. Yeah. You know, the God-fearing fella downstairs, but um, the chap who played him did a good job, I thought, so no yeah. loss there, really. And also closer in age to the character in the book as well. <laughs> well, uh, Je- Jeffrey Combs isn't a young man anymore, if you see him in... Well, well maybe eight years ago. But... <laughs> <laughs> There were some good performances in this. I mean, um, yeah, like we were just talking about, the guy who plays uh, Mazurvitz, the, the kind of evangelical Christian... Well, not maybe... Well, I mean, not smashing. evangelical, but... But, but, but guilt, guilt-ridden and, and very pious. Uh, yeah. Dombrowski, the, the old yeah. landlord fella, he was good. The woman in the neighbouring room... Yeah, I think this is the big... the role well. Well, this is the big change uh, in Dreams that Witch has, in that they you know, introduced a female character who wasn't Kaziah Mason. Now, Lovecraft in general wasn't very good about having women in his stories. I can only think of a handful. They tend to be antagonists or tend to be characters of, of evil repute. So you've got Kaziah Mason in Dreams of the Witch House, you've got Asnath Waite in yeah. Thing on the Doorstep, you've got Lavinia Waitley uh, in... Um, yeah, this is not stacking up well, is it? And those are the only three female characters I can think of in Lovecraft's ah, stories. That is a challenge. Well, unless you count Shubnigarath. No. Or, or Mother Hydra. Not really. I, I cannot think of another named female character in any of his stories. So, uh, and, and also this, this kind of ties in, we can't really avoid the, the sexual aspect of this, um, not just with gender, but um, with... with Lovecraft's kind of aversion to putting anything sexual in, in his stories, but as as um, Stuart Gordon talks about, and this is why he recast um, Frank Elwood as Francis Elwood, it allowed him to put sex in the story, and that Lovecraft did indeed put a lot of sex in the story, in the way in the fear of um, miscegenation and, uh, and and so on, and, and the outcome of sexual acts well, without actually putting sex in his stories. But but also more fundamentally as well by making Francis Elwood and this the mother of the child in peril, but, you know, adds a whole new dimension of horror to the story. I mean, sure. it was already fairly horrific you know, in that you've got your protagonist uh, you know, uh, Gilman being forced to carry out this child's sacrifice, having kidnapped this this poor child. The fact that it's the daughter of a woman he has come to care so much about makes it all the more horrific. And I felt when I first saw her, I thought, oh, big flag went up, love interest. But not really that. It doesn't really play out as a, as a romance between the two of them. I mean, a little bit, but not, not really. There's, there's the spark, there's the beginning of it, but it never has a chance to go anywhere. No. Events overtake There's a great scene where, where um, she comes to his door saying, uh, oh, how about that cup of tea now? And he's like, no, no, i got to study. And she's like, well, you know, couldn't I just come in for a few minutes? And you're like, let her in! What is wrong with you, man? She's just asking to come in and spend some time with you. And you're like, you're not getting it. What's wrong with him? He's a Lovecraft protagonist. That's what's wrong with him. Or he's just got my empathy skill. (laughs) I was surprised, as as you were, at what a, you know... 
I, I'm used to Stuart Gordon and and you know his his uh, writing partner Dennis Paoli, is it or pa- Paoli? But he's the guy who's written the the, the he wrote the screenplays for Reanimator, Dagon, and for this. They've been fairly fast and loose with Lovecraft in the past. Yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm not saying this in an accusatory way. I, you know, I, I think Reanimator and Dagon are terrific films. Um, Both in very different ways. Yes, but but neither of them are you know particularly faithful to the source material. Um, as close as the shadow of Rinsmith. Yeah, but but it, yeah, it, it diverges an awful lot. Course, I mean, I wonder yeah. if that is because this just lent itself better to be being because of its its uh, much more restricted location. Whether it lent itself more to being turned into a, um, a screenplay, yeah, perhaps. quite possibly. Um, but certainly, they were much truer um, to the story. But he does do that thing of which I mentioned in the first episode, of uh, having the, the protagonist just kind of turn up at the house and not know that it's a witch house and yes. not realise all this, this stuff, and it's no, kind he, of slowly he, revealed to him. Yeah, he pieces it together fairly quickly. I mean, yeah. there's, there's that scene where he's doing the models of you know the planes of reality intersecting uh, on his computer and looks around and realises that he's basically modelled the angles of the, the corner of his room. Exactly. Which is yeah. just terrific. And then they kind of warp as he puts them together on his computer. Yeah. Well, that's very nice. <laughs> and Gordon talks in the um, commentary about the, the set of the, um, the, the room and how they used a lot of kind of theatrical techniques rather than CGI. So they were very keen not to use CGI. He comes from a theatrical background, was yeah. part of it. Yes. Well, he still, he still does you know, theatrical productions in Chicago. So a lot of what we see in, in, the, in, the, in the studio of, of the set of this room, the, rooms are, the walls are made such that they can have back projections put on them so they're not solid, so they're kind of translucent, so they can have you know, light shone on them and things like that. So what's actually happening there is... The, the, char- the actors can react to and, and actually see as well. Mm. well I, th- I thought the same, particularly the changing of the, um, the changing gender, worked really well because Elwood in the story is a very, very much a sketch. He's there mm. to fulfil a purpose, whereas this made the character a a tie into the story and b something that had a lot more impact. So emotionally well, and on the story itself, but but the fact that you know that you you got to see the interactions between the characters, you got to see the characters talking to each other as well. Um, you know, it, it sort, sort of made the whole uh, human aspect of it immediately feel so much more real. I mean, even without you know the uh, the extension of the relationship between them and so on, ju- ju- just the fact that you know these were presented as people rather than just a couple of lines of description. <laughs> mm-hmm. And not another student student of Miskatonic that's read every goddamn book in the rare book section. <laughs> so, so, you know, there is a nice bit with him, you know, sleepwalking off and doing precisely that. Well, you're finding yourself there with a copy of the Necronomicon in front of him, yes. Yeah, yeah and it is that kind of classic um, dreaming you're, uh, you know, you're having a dream and you're back in school, you know, either naked or in your pyjamas or something. And there he is, and he's actually experiencing that. Yes, with a very cross librarian. Yeah, it was pretty good fun. And of course it is the Necronomicon. It, it has to be. has to be. Uh, Complete with the uh, face on the front. Yeah. How could you have made things worse? We talked about the black man, Father. The emissary of terrible powers. Speak of the devil and he shall appear. Dagon is, is certainly Lovecraft in his own way, but at the same time, it's you know it, everything's turned up to 11 in a way that is not in the shadow of Rinsmith. Yeah. I love Dagon to bits. I think it's a terrific film, but... It gets a bit gonzo. Yeah, exactly. in, in a way, this one doesn't, I think. Yeah. Although I was sat there watching it with my wife Lucy last night, she was doing some marking and then, then kind of looked up and there was Brown Jenkin 
on the screen and she just burst into hysterics and I was like no stop laughing this isn't funny this is, this is horror <laughs> yeah I mean, to, to be fair you know, the rendition of Brown Jenkins there did look more kind of cute and comical than, than oh, it was cute yeah. well she said why is Scabbers in a horror in a, in a Lovecraft film oh, Matt's looking quizzical Scabbers Harry Potter Ron Weasley's rat that would be a question for my other half to say Tiff would get those yeah. references I haven't they just go wee straight off my so head. I have to say about a bit about it. He, he, uh, Gordon says that the guy that played the rat was a Ukrainian magician a stage magician <laughs> and he cast him because he liked his kind of um, persona and performances when the special effects guys got hold of him they said great we don't have to do anything with him <laughs> <laughs> now I kind of hope that they did do a bit of stuff with him because he hasn't actually got whiskers growing out of his face but I think the point was they didn't have to do that much um, and that um, you know he's just got this fantastic face for it and like I was saying about the performance he's been so good in this he, he really brings that thing to life yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, considering that you know he, he's he's barely in it, and oh, you, uh, at least you know you, you barely get to see the human face very often. He doesn't do much more other than mutter a bit, but oh. you know, he's he's fantastic. And his best line in it, well, maybe that maybe a bit tongue in cheek, but the line that gets me is where it, after just as he's eaten Gilman at the end, that he's run, everyone's screaming in the psychiatric ward, and he's like hee hee, and as the door opens, boom. <laughs> yeah, no, I missed that. that. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, that was lovely. But yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was another one of the changes for this. That um, you know, the, the ending was. Well, yeah, I mean, it still had you know fundamentally the same thing of uh, Gilman being you know eaten from the inside out by by Brown Jenkin, but it had him being arrested for the murder and taken off to you know psychiatric institution and so on, which I thought would actually worked quite yeah, well. It's a bit, I more so. a bit more realistic as well because someone would call the police in that kind of instance where they well, just found a dead. Kid. I thought, I well, thought it, that worked it, very well. It, yeah, except you know obviously there, there was never an issue of that happening in the uh, in the short story because mm-hmm. the dead body of the child wasn't found until the house collapse you know they were going through the house later we don't get the final part of Brown Gen- Jenkin dying though do we he just no. kind of gets away and mm-hmm. uh, that, that's kind of the end of the story which yeah. again I think you know works perfectly works well perfectly you know, he's, well. he's still out there in the world and... because in that in Lovecraft's story we get that final bit of um, Brown Jenkins bones being found in the attic but it's it's not like in some of his stories where you get that final t- reveal if you like because we kind of the story kind of told us that Brown Jenkins was real and the things were real. It wasn't that we were thinking, oh, it was all just a dream. Oh, and then they find his bones in the attic. So, oh my God, he was real actually. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, it's almost climactic. It yeah. is really. Yeah. Well, doesn't really add anything. Yeah. Just tells us that he died. Well, I'd be happier if he was alive. Mm. I, I do quite like having that ominous uh, little rat face monster, uh, that little rat monster running around out there. It's never really pinned down in the story, you know, who the master in that relationship is between Keziah and Brown Jenkins. Or what he is yeah. in relation to uh, Keziah. Because late on in the story, Walter Gilman sees Brown Jenkins and realises what, um, what a resemblance there is between Brown Jenkins and Keziah Mason. Yeah. Why? Is she his child? Is, is he a part of her? Uh, you know, what? Your mind can fill in all sorts of reasons. Mm. And I, I actually like the fact that it's not explained because it's it's all the creepier for that. Yeah, um, and getting onto the gaming aspect for later, it also allows the keeper to do a lot more interesting mm. and varied things with it later. Mm. Yeah, 
But going back to uh, some of the things that uh, Stuart Gordon was saying on the commentary about the witch. They cast the witch because I'm Mason. He said a couple of things. He said one was that they got all these generally kind of older women in. And he said as soon as he gave any woman position, permission to act the role of a witch, <laughs> they like just switched into it. <laughs> They got this theory that every woman had got this insider, and all you had to do was give her permission to sort of be did, this witch. Did, and did, it's did, kind did, of an archetype did, they were happy to adopt. Did you test this on, on Lucy? I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> I've been married long enough to know that that's there. Um, and, and, but the other thing he said was that the woman they cast was uh, a, a dancer. You know, so they, they put some makeup on her to sort of make her look, you know, more old and haggard and so on. But then when she gets naked in the bed, Stuart Gordon was like, you look so good. We've got to make you look worse. <laughs> <laughs> so they're kind of adding these other weird breasts and things just to, to make her look, because uh, actually she was, yeah. um, you know, in, in really good shape. <laughs> Uh, more yes. so than he wanted her to be. Yes, that, I can see that undermining the scenes. So. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's harking back to that kind of moment from um, Kubrick's The Shining. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. One bit that I thought was really powerful, it's when Walter Gilman is talking to Joe Mazowitz and he's saying Joe is talking about the child killings mm. and he confesses to the fact that he himself killed some children. Yes. And Walter says, my God, why didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you tell someone? And Mazowitz says, I did. And they wouldn't believe me. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that was so sad that not only was he racked with guilt, he couldn't even persuade someone to get punished for it, even when he wanted to. Yeah. That, 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 was, that was really dark. Yeah. That was, that was a nice moment. Again, thinking from the keeper aspect, it's a way to stop the police being a real sticking bug. Yeah. Yeah, because any, any given crime... You know, notorious crime. The police, I understand, get loads of people ringing up and saying, "I did it." You know, I, I you know, I, yeah. I killed this person or well, I did this crazy thing. And uh, you know, if the person's you know phoning up saying, "I did this because the centuries-old witch in her you know human-faced rat familiar told me to," <laughs> you're, you're going to be first on the list to be struck off. Well, this is exactly what happens to Walter Gilman, isn't it? When he's in the in the um, padded cell with the uh, the um, psychiatrist or doctor. And uh, he's explaining the whole thing to her. And she says, yes, yes, I understand. I understand, Mr. Gilman. So you think a witch told you to kill the child? And he's like, no! And, uh, yeah. It's just, and when she comes out and says, yeah, he's completely insane. Obviously, he did it, but he's insane. In a lot of ways, you know, it would present as a classic psychotic delusion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the anniversary of the night they burned Lavinia Morley, many strange and sinister dreams are experienced. But are they dreams? Or are they the signs of the curse of the Crimson Altar? Of course, this isn't the only time that Dreams of the Witch House has, has been filmed, or at least has influenced a film. There was a, a 1968 British film. It's not credited as being based on Dreams of the Witch House, and, and actually, yeah, if you watch it, it's, it's not. But it's sort of, you know, a, a, an open secret, or, you know, it's, it's known, you know, relatively well known that it was inspired by Dreams of the Witch House. And it's a, a film called Curse of the Crimson Altar, or uh, the US title, I believe, was The Crimson Cult. It was Boris Karloff's last film. Uh, it stars Christopher Lee. It's 
a bit shit, really, but um, but it's shit in that that kind of entertaining, genteel nineteen uh, sixties British way. There's a lot to recommend the film. The connection with Dreams in the Witch House is a simple one, in that a lot of it is set around this manor house uh, somewhere in the east of England, where the living family of uh, a witch who was executed for witchcraft centuries ago you know, live now. A lot of it uh, centres around visitors to the house who have dreams of the witch. To that extent, you know, there is the, you know, the the dreams of the witch house connection. In practice, you know, it's much more about a cult conspiracy uh, stuff like that. There, you know, there's you know, slight elements of the Wicker Man in there, even though it was made five years before the Wicker Man. Any Brown Jenkin? No Brown Jenkin. No Brown Jenkin. Um, but the dream sequences with the witch are done in a very kind of striking, um, not not quite surreal, but almost surreal way. Slightly thought, psychedelic? Yeah, quite quite psychedelic. For the 60s, you shock me. Lots of kind of coloured lighting effects, uh, people in strange masks, um, medieval torturers in fetish gear. and uh, You're always uh, describing the dream sequence in um, Coleman's Mask of the Red Death. Yeah, there certainly are similarities. But the highlight is the the witch uh, who is called Lavinia, um, <laughs> uh, Lavinia Morley, played by Barbara Steele in kind of green, is it green or blue? I think it's blue body makeup with kind of devil horns, uh, looking absolutely striking. The whole sequence, with you know, the whole dream sequence when it comes up over and over again in the film is you know, absolutely phenomenal and makes the film. The rest of it is pretty mediocre. The basic premise is an antiques dealer is heading off to this, this house in the country to look for his brother who you know, was there looking for antiques a while back, has gone missing. There's a Call of Duty scenario right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's going on turns out to be a lot less supernatural than it seems at first. Uh, and, Dis- and it, disappointed look from both me and Paul at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know the supernatural aspect isn't ruled out completely, but it does all go a bit Scooby Doo in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but the highlight of it, for me at least, was Boris Karloff. Uh, Did they pull his mask off as well? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Boris Karloff plays this this you know, aging antiquarian who is a, a friend of the Lord of the Manor who turns up and Karloff at this stage was you know a very old man and you know he's he spends the entirety of the film or just about the entirety being pushed around in a wheelchair, but still manages to you know act everyone else off the screen, even Christopher Lee. <laughs> as a film, it's mediocre, and as an adaptation of Dreams of the Witch House, it's not pretty poor. Yeah. yeah. There's enough Lovecraft there, you know, that if you're a Lovecraft completist, it's worth seeing. I was looking for that other adaptations on YouTube and came across... There's another one called Dreams in the Witch House. came out last year. Actually, this is on... When I looked on IMDb for some notes about the Stuart Gordon one, another title, another film of the same title came out last year. But it's a uh, director... And written and directed by a guy called Jerry Williams. A 30-minute black-and-white film... I couldn't find a, a version of it online. I didn't spend too long looking, but all I could find was a teaser on YouTube. It's a kind of a black and white, silent, arty. I think you'd like it, Scott. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like my kind of thing. I'm just yeah. wondering how they'd get the whole story into 30 minutes. Gordon had an hour. I'm not sure how much of the story they had in there. No, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't want to say it was shit without seeing the whole thing, but um, <laughs> it might be great. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they, there's, you know, I, as I'm sure most people who, who are listening to us would know, you know, there's a fairly, uh, and has been, you know, for you know, 10, 15 years, a fairly thriving uh, community of, of, you know, amateur or, you know, uh, semi-amateur uh, Lovecraftian filmmakers producing short films of, of varying quality. Mm. Yeah, they show up mm. at film festivals and, you know, show up on, on YouTube quite a lot. And Kickstarter. And, yeah, and, and some of them are really quite good, and some of them... Aren't. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to mention Beyond the Wall of Sleep by name, but I will. <laughs> I, I've, I've heard your cringing and crying about it, but I've not seen it. Oh, there was also <laughs> there was also a um, a short film that even the guy putting it up said was a bit rubbish. Some student project that they'd put up uh, again, Dreams of the Witch House. It was about a minute and a half and didn't really have any story at all. It, it does kind of reinforce the fact that. So many people have been kind of had their imagination captured by this story, I, and I can see why. Because I mean, for a start, it, 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 in a lot of ways, it's one of the most archetypal horror stories that Lovecraft wrote. But well, it ties for, into all the kind of traditional themes. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you know, it's Lovecraft's own science fictional take on it. In a lot of cases, it subverts the tropes that you know he appears to be using at first. But uh, you know, at the same time, it, it is a classic horror story. It's a classic kind of haunted house as well that's accessible because you could say Rats in the Walls is a haunted house but it's a bloody strange one yeah <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that's you know which is why I like it because it's it, it is so strange and so unusual whereas this one yeah you kind of sleep in the room you have weird dreams of a witch she comes and kind of tries to take you over and there's Except a monster and it is a lot weirder than that though it is pretty weird but you know you can take it on that level Yes, but by by getting rid of everything that the story's about. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, aside from uh, films and TV adaptations, there's also da, 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 there's a rock opera. Yes, we listened to it on the car on the way over. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I heard a few clips today. Yeah, I, I, I watched the uh, the music video that they did for it online a, a couple of days yes. back, and and I have listened to some of the songs now. Eh? Um, yeah, I, I I I kind of appreciate the the drive behind it and to, you know, it sounds like a very spirited very exciting production it's not unfortunately musically it's not really my kind of thing at all very well done but it's not really my bag I guess no it's, I mean it's a, it's a style of rock that yeah I, I, I'm not a young man and yeah it's a style of rock that became popular yeah after my musical taste sophified <laughs> and uh, so why are you both yeah, looking at me <laughs> yeah, yeah you don't have this excuse <laughs> I I, I yeah, Paul, Paul, Paul doesn't like anything after the 70s. I don't like anything after the 80s. What the fuck's wrong with you, Matt? I was brought up on disco music, for heaven's sake. That's what <laughs> most of my musical education was. I was educated on 70s and early 80s. So what did you make of it, Matt? Well, I've only listened to about two-thirds of it so far. And I watched the music video, the um, No Turning Back yes. uh, yeah. song. Thoroughly enjoyed that one. Yeah, actually I did as yeah. well. Um, that by far is the best song of what I've heard so far, and I've maybe about ten tracks in. I think. Actually, the music—is there just one music video? Is it the one of, uh, with a lot of black and white images of the guy, well, with of Gilman in his room reading books and making notes and so on? And then there's the, the it cuts to yeah. a color film of a woman on a bed. Yeah, that's no turning back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, that's a pretty good track. The other tracks are very similar, but there isn't much diversity. There isn't much. 
But I mean, this, this is from a superficial listen yeah, mm-hmm. on a car stereo on the way over when we were talking as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, before I, I had a co- yeah, gave a concrete opinion on it, I'd want to listen to it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, as a vinyl enthusiast, I feel I should really get the, uh, the kind of purpley mauve translucent vinyl yeah. pressing that they've oh, done yeah. of it. Yeah, I did, I did see that. I, yeah. I, I just ordered the CD from the... HBSHS store bizarre. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, you're all about the vinyl, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Black man appeared to Walter that night, Father. Nyarlahotep, the crawling chaos himself. At his command, Kaziah and her familiar showed Walter the book of Azathoth. They wanted him to sign it in his own blood. My God, he tried to resist. We'll put a link on the show notes for this to the music video, and there, there are a few sample tracks as well which you can stream. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you get clips. If you are into symphonic metal or you know have slightly younger tastes, and yeah, <laughs> it's not you... all about the age, Scott. Yeah, no, yeah. younger than all three of us. <laughs> <laughs> then, then yeah, you may well find this to your taste. And I don't mean to disparage it at all. I mean I can tell that it's actually quite a good production. It's just not oh yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. No, I think it's. it's pretty good stuff i'm just kind of disappointed that i don't like it more actually another adaptation well not adaptation another sort of spin-off i've seen which unfortunately i haven't had a chance to investigate was uh graham masterson the you know, british horror writer um, oh of course he wrote prey didn't he? yes yeah. prey uh he wrote a novel called Prey uh, years ago, uh, which is uh, has Brown Jenkins as one of the characters. He's even mm. on the front cover. Yeah. Okay. I've, uh, I've completely forgotten about that. Have, have you read it? No, I've got it. I just haven't read it. Uh, now, now that I know about it, I will read it and you know, probably come back at some stage and perhaps write a, uh, some comments and the replies to this piece. But um, yeah, it's, it, it intrigues me now. Well, shall we move on to the gaming aspects of this story? Yes, let's do that. Uh, as I said, um, uh, Walter Gilman, he sat there with his uh, 44 Cthulhu Mythos skill at <laughs> the outset of the story. So yet again, Lovecraft hits us with a, um, a player character, essentially, who's starting the game with a huge stack of Cthulhu Mythos, which is the one yeah. thing the game says, you start with zero Cthulhu Mythos skill. I, certainly this was much more the case in game design back in the 70s and 80s. I think because, you know, D&D was the, you know, the original role-playing game and character advancement was a big part of this. There was this idea that, you know, the characters and the source fiction that, you know, inspired you in the, you know, in, in the game that you were going to play weren't, were sort of aspirational. That you know, if if you were to play something like Star Wars, you had to uh, sort of build up to playing a Jedi. You know, you 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 had to earn your fun. Yeah, you started at first level. There's probably an element of this in Call of Cthulhu, though it's, it's quite perverse in this case. Building up to playing a Lovecraftian protagonist, which seems bizarre in a way, because that's really the path of destruction in the game. But I wonder also if it's a slight uh, misunderstanding of Lovecraft protagonists, because. 
in a lot of traditional um, supernatural stories, the protagonist is an innocent person who doesn't know about all this weird stuff. You know, they go out into the hut in the woods and they don't know what's out there. Um, whereas so many of Lovecraft's protagonists, as we talked about before, you know, it gets into the story and suddenly, oh yes, this reminds me of what I read in the Necronomicon when I was a student at the Miskatonic University. Mm. Well, probably more uh, more apt. Maybe the maybe the the keeper realizes they're going to end up being Gilman, but the player thinks uh, that somewhat little ray of hope they've got maybe thinks I could be the next Professor Armitage. I really could be oh, Randolph <laughs> Carter. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but I, I I think part of this as well, you know, particularly in the case of Call of Cthulhu, may be predicated on the assumption you're running this for people who haven't played you know Call of Cthulhu before that you don't know about the Cthulhu mythos and so yeah you're not expecting them to be uh, Walter Gilman or Professor Armitage or uh, Professor Lake or, or yeah I'm definitely a fan of that if if you as a player don't know about the setting having taking on a player character who is also ignorant of the setting is a really good place to start, I think. Mm-hmm. But but you know, at the same time, you shouldn't be afraid. I think to abandon that assumption, you know, once you get groups who've been playing Call of Cthulhu for ten years or whatever, yeah, you know, the next time you create another character, it's sort of okay, right? I'm going to pretend I don't know what any of this stuff is all over again. Yeah, well, why, why not start with someone like you know, uh, like Gilman? Mm. I also went to the uh, the rule book and checked out uh, Sixth Edition has stats for Lovecraftian personalities. So we've got Keziah Mason uh, with a Cthulhu Mythos skill of eighty one percent, which, if I'm not mistaken, is probably the highest percentage in the book. It's certainly a hell of a lot more than Professor Armitage and uh, so on. Well, consi- considering the things that she can do, that's yeah, uh, and the fact that she's you know kind of walks through time and space, mm. talking to Azathoth, Nyarlathotep, the Elder Things, and so on. Then yeah, Brown Jenkin, little fella, damage bonus minus one d six because he's so small. He still manages to eat someone's heart, even with a minus. Yeah, D6. this is a bit <laughs> of a flaw, I think, of the uh, of the damage bonus thing. So you've got anything the size of a, a rat or a cat or something is going to have a damage bonus of minus one d six. So what are they doing? They do one d three minus one d six. So pretty much they're no threat whatsoever, which but, doesn't but, really work. I mean. To be fair, in, in the story, what makes Brown Jenkin dangerous, what you know allows him to kill Gilman in the end, is the fact that you know he, he appears to teleport, uh, or at least you know kind of walk through you know the the angles of space and time, appear inside Gilman's chest, you know, eat his heart from the inside and chew out. Yeah, I mean, when, I took it he was using the same skills that Kazai Mason had of transporting himself through space and time, and, and yeah, into. So, yeah. so if you got into a kind of straight fist fight with, with Brown Jenkin, you know, there were no other distractions, he would probably nibble uh, some of the leather off your shoe and then you'd stamp him and crush his skull. That's not what makes him dangerous. He'd use the nuzzle attack. <laughs> <laughs> nuzzle you to with an inch of your life. I'm suddenly picturing James Herbert's main antagonist now as being very lame in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and Kazai Mason... An appearance of eight. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, in 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 the seventh edition, that'd be forty. Yeah. So, uh, but, yeah. 
She says she's what just you, a what little bit, thinking, Scott? A little I, bit I, below average. Yeah, I, 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 I was about to say. I mean, that's that's comparatively comely. If <laughs> if you think about a description of you know, uh, her long blackened hooked nose, her yeah. you know, uh, her, her wasted features. Yeah, I don't get that. Uh, I mean, so, so I've had characters with far lower appearance than that. She's prettier than a deep one. Given what they give them, there goes down to what zero, I believe. Well, they're they're actual monsters, aren't they? So they probably don't yeah. get an appearance when, that, when they when they're in the hybrid state. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but but because I Mason is a human being, she's just she's described as being fairly repellent. Mm. It's interesting to think about what spells she actually manifests in the story. We get the effect mm. of her traveling through, you know, folding space and time and traveling through angles to distant planets and so on. So obviously, she can create and use gates. There's con- you know, perhaps some contact spells uh, or call spells. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, particularly she- Arthur Tep and Azathoth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, possibly you know, ability to contact the older things. But, mm-hmm. Maybe uh, some spell to kind of cloud the memory or kind of cause visions or something in people. Mm-hmm. You know, she virtually kind of dominates Walter Gilman, but he yeah. kind of breaks through it. I was going to say dominate because it is very much he's like a puppet at times. But in a lot of cases, you know, it strikes me that this is probably cleaves slightly closer to, you know, the what what you've put in seventh edition about spontaneous use of the Cthulhu Mythos skill. Mm. That you know, in a lot of cases, she's just basically breaking the laws of reality by, um, you know, having this deeper understanding of what reality actually is. She's not portrayed in the story as casting spells. No. As they are innate abilities, almost. Mm. Yeah, she, yeah. She, she knows the cheat codes for the universe. <laughs> so, if we were making a game out of this, I mean, I, I had a look. I couldn't see any scenarios that were directly based on this. Did no. anybody have more luck than the, me? The, the, the only things I found were, you know, the, the the Arkham Source book, you know, makes references to the Witch House and. Uh, Certainly, one of those books actually got this story printed in it. Yes, I think. yeah, it is. Yeah, it is uh, Arkham Unveiled. I think there isn't a scenario, as far as I can see, that that you know, really draws on it, or at least not a published one that I've encountered. There are mentions. I think it was also in Arkham Unveiled that mentioned about the lecture at the Miskatonic that Gilman deals with does go on to become a story hook that the keeper can use to say this is someone who's had contact with the mythos and is now trying to organise people, aka the players. Um, to combat it. Hmm. Okay, and th- there's also stuff in the the Arkham uh, source book about the witch cult in in Arkham that's been mm-hmm. going on before, which sort of ties in with you know Kazai Mason's mm-hmm. misdeeds throughout history. Oh, that was one thing I forgot when I read it. Uh, just as a tangential reference, uh, one of the lines that's very early on in the statement about the uh, the witches hiding and so forth is uh, used wholesale in the opening track for uh, Shockoth on the Roof. Oh, gosh. Okay, I've yeah. forgotten that. Yeah, so it's just before the section um, where all the witches uh, hid from the old uh, uh, times of the king's province and such. Well, uh, the, witches, uh, the witches are still here, but the king is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so if this were a scenario, if you are going to try and adapt this story to a scenario, could you do it? It would make a good scenario for a one-on-one player. Yeah. You could sort of have Elwood in there as another player character, potentially. Yeah, he doesn't really do anything. But, but, but yeah, you know, as is the case you know, with a lot of Lovecraft stories directly, it is about a single protagonist. Yeah. That doesn't lend itself wholesale to conversion to a scenario. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't use a lot of you know, the elements of that uh, in a scenario. Uh, Some of the scenarios have been done before, admittedly not for a fair long time. You've got Alone Against the Wendigo and Alone Against the, um, Alone against the Night. Mm. But 
they they're very much open ended in that so there are lots of scenes that you could go between. They don't see that the you're, you're talk, what you're talking about there is actual find your own adventure books. That... Essentially, yeah, um, they they are run by say by keeper for. Well, only against the Wendigo is it isn't doesn't have a keeper. Oh, I thought you it just did. read it through. It's like a fan, fa- fighting adventure. fantasy yeah. adventure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Choose your own adventure. Hmm. As I say, it probably wouldn't work too much for that kind of style anyway, because there's not that much to interact with beyond his own knowledge. That it's a lot of what's in detail in the story is him drawing out what he already knows. Yeah, and I don't, it wouldn't really work too well as a scenario to go or oh, roll your mythos to know what you already know. No, mm. no, I, I, I don't think that you know the overall structure in the story of Dreams in the Witch House would lend itself to world conversion to a scenario. But a lot of the elements of it, I think, would. I mean, you could you could deconstruct this mm. and and reimagine a lot of it. I mean, the Witch House itself would be quite a powerful locale. Um, yeah, but particularly you know if you had the fabric of reality, you know, growing weak from Kazai Mason. Uh, dealings. You could approach it from the outside in. You could actually have um, the nice premise that I, could, that I could think of would be you have the investigators looking into the missing children. Yeah. And then you gradually you have the climax of the scenario, at least like the la- latter act, being when they finally get to the house. But otherwise, there's a lot of investigation and going, oh, these people suddenly appeared in the middle of nowhere. You've got this um, black guy with hooves that were seen out in the um, out in the alley. You've got uh, Gilman running around in the mud. Etc. Yeah, I mean, um, you said about using uh, Elwood as a as a player character. Well, potentially you could if you had the witch affecting more than just yeah. um, more than just Gilman. Uh, if these other characters are also brought into it, so you've kind of got the player characters that are all boarders in this house, yes. uh, and they all kind of get touched. And that reminds me of um, what uh, Mazurvitz says in the, in the story. Uh, he makes reference to the witch not having visited him for several months. And that seems to coordinate with when uh, Gilman moved in to the house, pretty much. Yeah, so it's like when was, Gilman moved in... Someone more malleable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't see why you couldn't have several people being drawn in and they could be transported to the... Um, you know, you could have an episode in the in the older thing city on this other planet. You could, um, you or know, any other planet going to other, hmm? or any other planet. That you yeah, use. other planets, other places, other times. Because it yeah. it kind of purports that you could um, learn how to travel through space and time and go into dimensions where time doesn't move, and that's how she's lived so long. Um, well, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, other aspects of this you could use then is the fact that you know perhaps. Um, you know, Kazaya Mason isn't the only person who's learned how to do this in the mm. house. The you know, perhaps there are other you know old lodgers from from times back, and you know who are are still kind of living in the fabric of the house somewhere. And ones that went to the court of Azathoth realised it was a really bad idea and came back with what little bit of their sanity they had left. Or, or, or yeah, or alternatively, ones who you know did sign the book did go off to the court mm-hmm. of Azathoth and came back changed. Mm-hmm. And what about if the if the player characters did actually um, break through into the attic room? Because it implies that there's lots of um, writings and things up there that get destroyed in the end of the story when the, the uh, tree falls on the roof. Um, but then they're all kind of crushed into fragments. But um, so there's loads of uh, stuff up there to be discovered. Yeah. Lots of knowledge of how mm. this this stuff works. Plus plenty of artifacts. And it only mentions the bowl, the um, the, the statue. Thing, statue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What else did she have? 
stepping back from the, um, the the story itself and just looking at the individual elements, I, I think there's quite a lot you can do with the, uh, the the sort of dreaming aspect of it. I mean, it becomes almost like an alternative approach to Dreamlands games, uh, where you're, you're you're taking the same kind of dreaming approach, but instead of going to this very kind of concrete other world which the dreamlands is you know you're you're skipping across space and time and there's that 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 throwaway bit in in the story where gilman is trying to find his way back home he's talking about drawing upon his knowledge of Mm. you know of of physics and mathematics to work out his you know uh, how to step through the dimensions and work his way home but he's he's not quite sure whether he's getting it right and he's worried about perhaps ending up somewhere you know inhospitable to life or or is it a dream house he ends up in when he comes back or some kind of alternate reality or something like that that what we understand as lovecraft's dreamlands is a very kind of fantastical place whereas in Dreams in the Witch House, it's much more of a kind of science fiction, kind of just our reality. Yeah, it's, tra- tra- it's, it's, it's traveling to other worlds. Yeah, yeah, alien worlds. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I mean, they, they, there's elements of this in Lovecraft's other stories, and there's certainly elements of that in Call of Cthulhu, gates to Solano, and you know, being taken through space to Yogath. Uh, uh, but yeah, that the, the fact that you can do this through this this kind of physical, you know, walking through dreams. Uh, is is another way of well, it's another way of bringing in these aspects of the mythos that you wouldn't normally get to see in a, 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 a Call of Cthulhu scenario. A lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios for you know all, all their you know, mythos elements and a lot of the you know for uh, the, the horror and strangeness involved uh, tend to be quite earthbound. You do have your dreamland scenarios. This is something that kind of opens up new vistas. Not enough monsters, though. <laughs> well, you've got the elder things. Oh, they don't really feature, though, do they? They kind of they're, they're glimpsed, but they don't really do much in the story. We don't, they don't. And you've got the the bubble and the trapezoid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's bubbles. I mean, man, what is that? It could be Yogg-Sothoth, but we don't really get that impression. I, um, I quite just like Brown Jenkins on his own. He's a monster with character. I do kind of like he's, Brown Jenkin. He's probably the, um, besides the Arthur himself, the only of the monsters that actually has a personality. But I kind of picture him in a little cage, running around on a wheel. <laughs> I can't help thinking of keeping him as a little pet. Oh, and every now and then putting a baby's finger through there for him to nibble on. <laughs> you could use some of the ideas in this, I think, to instill a sense of wonder into you know um, Lovecraftian horror that is is perhaps you know not explored you know as much as it could be in the uh, in Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Just how big is the universe? Yeah, it, it, well, it is this kind of alien science fictional aspect of it, which there is this whole kind of populated weird universe out there, not just other worlds but other planes. You, you use some of this stuff. <laughs> the devil, he does not thirst for blood. He thirsts for souls. I'm a grad student. Student? Then I'm going to need the extra month's rent in advance. So if you were creating Walter Gilman as a player character, how do you think you could create him with those obsessions and and kind of build that into his character so he's not just a, you know, just a, a faceless PC? Well, I mean, there's certainly backstory elements you could um, you could pull in there. As far as his beliefs are concerned, you know, he's got this very strong belief, which you know, he's all about proving, which is that you know what people see as folklore and superstition is in fact you know a, a very alien form of science. 
Um, and you know, it, you know what, what ultimately drives him and destroys him in this uh, is you know his desire to you know get to the bottom of this or at least to explore it. It strikes me there's quite a lot of the things in this story that could be manifestations of ins- insanity, so delusions that the keeper could throw at him, um, Co- correlating with how he gains more mythos. Mm. Yeah. But but yeah, if we're looking at him as a, a starting player character. There are a couple of different ways you could do that. One is, I mean, you could open up the option, sort of put in the backstory elements of uh, him, you know, perhaps having a bit of insanity in there. Um, I, I can't remember, you know, when you've got the backstory creation in, in Call of Cthulhu, are there, you know, are there any options in 7th edition for actually starting out with a, a damaged character like that? Well, there are. If you take a character who has the mythos... Exp- there's various experience packages, yes, so you can have a war experience or military, ex- well, sorry, military war uh, or uh, medical experience, and one of them is mythos experience. So you get a roll of the dice on how much Cthulhu mythos points you've got, and I think you lose a an equal amount of sanity, perhaps. I can't remember exactly. Do you, but Do you get a backstory element that ties in with that as well? Yes. Not only do you lose some, some sanity points, but you also get a uh, phobia or a a scar, or perhaps one of each. You know, some some medical uh, thing and some um, psychological um, disability. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have to be a phobia. I mean, in in the case of Gilman, you could almost look at it as a mania. He's he's being compelled to to do things that are entirely counter, ultimately, to his self-interest, to his survival, uh, to his well-being, you know, physical and Mm. and sanity-wise. Uh, and yeah, I mean, portraying that as um, as a mania would make perfect sense. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, 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 th- that's probably the way I do it. Then yeah, if I were creating him as a character, yeah, I'd definitely take that that mythos package, and then I'd make him all about obsession. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thinking of drives in Trail of Cthulhu, for example, I know obsession and this thirst for knowledge and so forth is one of the examples listed in the book there. Um, that's actually the one I prefer to play normally it's I want to get to the bottom of this I want more mythos skill cough cough I want to go mad but yeah it's it's a, it's a well well and truly time tested drive for most most PCs in that kind of scenario yeah I mean, and, and also I mean you don't need anything mechanical on your, your sheet you know to, to play that kind of character anyway you know if in your mind you've decided that you know your character is obsessed with uncovering a particular truth you know then then you know, play him or her that way. Yeah. I certainly don't need encouragement to read a book whenever I find it. No. Yep. <laughs> so I think that about wraps us up for Dreams in the Witch House, part two. Mm. Uh, you can find us on a myriad of so- different social media, G+, Facebook, YouTube, yeah. uh, also on BlasphemousTomes.com. Yeah, on BlasphemousTomes.com, they, they st- I mean, we... we Normally, the the show notes that we put up are you know fairly facetious things, but this time there's a there are going to be a couple of concrete links in there to things that we've discussed in the show. So, well, assuming I remember, you've promised it now, Scott. So, yeah, I'm going to hold I, you to that. I, I'll forget all about it. So, if you see me on social media later, remind me to edit the the, the thing and put those everything I promised back in. <laughs> okay, well that wraps up for tonight. So goodbye from me, cheerio from me, and farewell from me. Japanese 
Thank <laughs> you.